Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon. Today, Pastor Tom J.J. Wood continues our summer series called Church Words. Let's go. Well, good morning, Wood of Life. How are we doing? I'm sure we're doing better than that. Come on now. Are you ready to be in church? Are you glad you're here? Are you psyched about what's going on? And so uh, in honor of Father's Day, there is only one appropriate way to start, and that's by just reviewing the Internet's finest dad jokes. Um, Now, I should warn you, um, these are very intellectual. Um, This is a very deep sense of humor. Um, It's very sophisticated. So I hope your expectations are high because that is perfectly appropriate right now. But um, a therapist asks a patient why they've come to see them. The man says, I have a terrible fear of tsunamis. The therapist says, how bad is it? He said, it comes in waves. (laughs) Megan, we're off to a good start. This is good. Okay. Megan accused me of stealing her thesaurus. Not only was I shocked, I was also aghast, appalled, and dismayed. (laughs) I get nostalgic putting my car in reverse. It always takes me back. Okay, I heard a groan. That's That's not appropriate. My first time in an elevator was an uplifting experience but my second was a real letdown. (laughs) I got an email last week telling me how to read maps backwards. It was just spam. (laughs) I recently took a leadership position at Old McDonald's Farm. I'm the (laughs) C-I-E-I-O. And Jonathan Durst, this is one for you to write down. There was a great king who was only 12 inches tall. He was an excellent ruler. (laughs) I've been doing lunges to get in shape. It's a big step forward. I have a pessimism jar in my office. Every time I have a negative thought, I put a penny in. Now it's half empty. (laughs) All right, last one. What do you call two birds that are stuck together? Velcros. (laughs) I, I, I can take no credit. Quick Google search, help me out. But I'm so glad you guys are here. We're on week three of a series that we started uh, called Church Words. And the idea behind the series is that there are words that we would say in regards to faith or church or the Bible or relationship with God or following a life of uh, faith, following Jesus, that we would say in a church environment or would say in a faith context, but you wouldn't really use outside of a church environment or a conversation about the things of faith. And so the idea is that we're going to take some of these words and just consider what they mean and what it can teach us about our faith. And the word today is going to be disciple. The word disciple. Last week we talked about grace, and we said that grace is God's undeserved and unearned goodness, favor, empowerment, and blessing. We talked about how grace reprioritizes everything. We talked about how grace finds joy in others finding grace. And today we're going to look at the word disciple. 
And if we use the word disciple uh, in a modern context, we would normally say words like discipline or disciplinary. And it's interesting because disciplined is both a positive and a negative word because if I were to describe somebody and call somebody a disciplined person, we would say that's a positive thing and that's a compliment. But if I were to say that I am disciplining somebody or somebody is being disciplined, we would take that as a negative. Um, you know, somebody's going through a, a disciplinary process, something like that has a positive and a negative connotation. But still, I think we have this idea and we're we're aware that there's a, a concept of there being a teacher, a mentor, and there being a learner, and a pupil, and a student. And there being somebody that is older, somebody that has walked a path in life, and somebody that has gone on somewhat of a journey that's able to help somebody else along their way. And if you think about movies, this character comes up all the time in movies. We see Mickey in the Rocky movies. We see Obi-Wan in Star Wars, Sean Connery in The Untouchables, Mr. Miyagi in The Karate Kid, um, Cherokee Jack in Threat Level Midnight, is that somebody older knows the way and that somebody that is able to help the young hero teach them something that they need to know so they can defeat the enemy. This character pops up in movies all the time. If you have that in your mind, I tell you, the amount of movies you watch where some hero that's older can spring up to help the young hero, Lord of the Rings just came to my mind now. It comes up all the time in movies. And this idea of an older person teaching a younger person, obviously our heads can straight away go towards parenting, and of course there's a huge part of it. But even beyond the idea of it being a parent to a child relationship, we still see throughout all of human history, older people teaching younger people the way to go. Even in the Old Testament, we see Moses mentoring, teaching Joshua. We see Eli teaching, raising up Samuel. We see Elijah and Elisha. And this happens again and again throughout the Old Testament. But if you fast forward a little bit into Greek culture, which helped inform uh, Jesus' day, you see that the role of a disciple and uh, the teacher was a formal relationship. It had taken shape a little bit. It became something formal. This is a few hundred years before Jesus. And the disciples would have a formal relationship with their teacher, and they would commit to learn from them. Consequently, the disciple would be defined by who they follow. So uh, consequently, they were named after their teachers. So Epicurus had Epicureans, which pops up in the Bible. Socrates had Socratics. Aristotle had Aristat. I'm going to mess this one up, Megan. Aristotelians. It's a lot easier to type it and write it down than it is to say it, I promise. But as the message of Jesus spread beyond Judea to the Greco-Roman world, the followers of Christ became known as Christians. It was something that was common among the Greek culture is that the teacher that is gathering a group of disciples and teaching them would also give their name to describe these people that are following them. So we hear that it's actually in the Greco-Roman world, it's in that culture where the followers of Jesus were first called Christians because they were following Jesus. And that's in the Greek culture, but in the Jewish culture, things were a little bit different. Things were a little bit different in the Jewish culture prior to the first century. There was much more of an apprenticeship focus Rather, in the Greek culture, it was a lot more like a classroom setting, where the person who was the teacher, the person that was doing the discipling, they would teach and they would share insight and they would share wisdom. And the students, it would be their responsibility to sit, to learn, to take it all in. But in the Jewish culture, they had a different emphasis than just sitting and learning. Rather, they had more of an apprenticeship, hands-on approach to things. And so the idea of a formal relationship of teachers and students, it was also present, but it was a lot more hands-on. The student would observe the teacher in action. Whatever the field, whatever it was that they were learning from this person that was discipling them, they would see and observe what they were doing. They would learn and ask questions and then go and do likewise. 
And so then you have the Greeks who are a lot more akin to a classroom or a university setting, which is really the impetus of how we came to have that system of education today, is it all started with the Greeks, that there was someone at the front teaching, and then there was a bunch of people sat down learning from them. And then you had the Hebrews that had a hands-on approach to everything. And so even today, you'll hear people talk about the Greek or Hebrew method of teaching. But by the time we get to Jesus in the first century in Judea, it appears that these two styles, the classroom and the practical, had somewhat intermingled, had somewhat overlapped. And so you see in the life of Jesus as he is discipling the students that there is both the theoretical teaching and there's the daily application. And so at the time of Jesus, what was typical for the people doing the discipling or the rabbis or the teachers is that there would be young Hebrew children learning the scriptures and then they would see how to live them out by looking to the person doing the discipling, the teacher, the leader, the person they were looking up to. How are they living out what they are teaching me? And the disciple was expected not only to learn all that the rabbi knew, but also to become like them in character and conduct. They would listen to them teach on the scriptures and then learn how to live that out for themselves. And the disciples, oftentimes, they would leave home and move in with the teacher. They served the teacher as a servant, trusting them as an absolute authority. And the teacher, in turn, would often be expected to provide food and lodging. And in this way, that kind of relationship, that close, upfront relationship, meant that they got to observe the person they're learning from. The disciple got to see how they lived in every facet of life. And we see this combination of theory and practical in Jesus' relationship with the disciples. We see Jesus' disciples sitting at his feet as he teaches, and we see them going out in pairs to minister the same way they had seen Jesus do. That's interesting is the uh, time of the first century when the New Testament was written, there was no need for the writers of the New Testament to explain and expand and give a definition of disciple because they all knew what a disciple was. So I scoured through some dictionaries and I spent a good amount of time this week, and it was a fascinating week of study for me. But the de best definition I could put down was disciple is following, obeying, learning from, and listening to a teacher that defines who we are and how we engage the world. Now, let me rephrase that. A disciple of Jesus is following, obeying, learning from, and listening to Jesus as he defines who we are and how we engage the world. And so if you read the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, usually the term the disciples is what comes up most often. It refers specifically to the group of 12 men that Jesus was leading and specifically working with, given specific discipleship to. But it also reads that John the Baptist had disciples. The Pharisees had disciples. And it was the same idea that to take people where they've gone, so the leader would take people where they've gone before to show the young men and the young women where, how they were going to navigate these paths they've never been on before, to teach them. And it required a deep commitment. They would spend significant time together. The discipleship relationship would define their character and reputation. And when Jesus says that students are not greater than their teacher, but the student who is fully trained will become like the teacher, that statement is not terribly unusual for the first century. This idea of discipleship, that was understood and that was known from the people reading this for the first time that yes, a student is not going to supersede the teacher, but there is a student that needs to be fully trained so that they can become like the teacher and do likewise. There are a few things where Jesus was different than what was normal in the first century. This discipleship relationship, it was common, it happened, it was understood how that dynamic would work, but there are some, some ways where Jesus was different than what had become normal. For instance, Jesus had a greater focus of serving his disciples rather than them serving him. I have come to serve, not to be served, is what Jesus said. 
We also see that Jesus invited people to follow him. He sought out people. Typically, the young people would approach a teacher to be their disciple. And if you can imagine that dynamic of people coming to you, asking you if you will be their leader, if you will be their rabbi, if you will be their teacher, it's easy to see how that would fuel pride in somebody, having a whole bunch of people asking them if they can come and serve them to learn from them. Having people plead with them to accept them as a disciple. Part of this is that the teacher would be very cautious about who they accepted. If the disciple did something wrong, it was viewed as an embarrassment to them. But Jesus did it differently. He just said, follow me. He said, follow me. And he said that to people who were not expecting this. Jesus said, follow me to people who every other rabbi would never consider taking on as a disciple. To people who would have embarrassed the other rabbis. Those are the people Jesus went to and said, follow me. In John's gospel, chapter one, we see the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. In Matthew's gospel, one day as Jesus was walking on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little further up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee repairing the nets, and he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Matthew 9, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in his tax collector's booth, follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. And this invitation from Jesus to come, follow me, it's important we always have in our mind that this wasn't a small deal, this was a big deal, this was a big significant commitment. It meant leaving everything, leaving behind the fishing business you become accustomed to, leaving behind the tax collector's booth. It was a big commitment that Jesus put in front of people to come and follow me. And there are people that Jesus said, come follow me, that said no. There are people, you can read about it in the Bible where it talks about people having family concerns and not wanting to follow Jesus because of having family concerns or financial obligations. There are people that said, we wanna come follow you as long as there's the safety and security that they didn't wanna to have to give up. And when they found out that actually, Jesus doesn't even have a place to lay his head, they backed away. And the call from Jesus to follow me is a call to move from the crowd to disciple. The call from Jesus, follow me, this big commitment that he's putting in front of people, that he's extending to people that have no right to be invited to be a disciple of anybody. It is a call to move from the crowd to the disciple. Now the crowd in the gospels, you see them a lot of the times, they would spring up as Jesus is teaching, is performing miracles, he's healing people, all sorts of great things are happening. Of course a crowd turns up. But what we read about as we look at it is that the crowds, they come and go. In the gospels we see that the crowds are inconsistent or the crowd has a limit. The crowds are distant, and I mean physically, they're distant from Jesus. There are times where he would have to stand in a boat so that he could speak to the amount of people that have come. There are times where he had to be on a mountain so that he could project and he could speak to the amount of people that have come to see him. But the people that were in the crowd, they weren't up close. And oftentimes the crowds don't outlast the challenge. In the Gospels, they talk about the crowds a lot, and it's important to remember the crowd is not vilified. The crowds are not the villains in the story of the, the New Testament. Jesus, he taught the crowds, he healed the crowds, he fed the crowds, he prayed for the crowds, he had compassion on the crowds. But the crowds weren't disciples. 
Being a disciple is a serious commitment. We know of the 12 that are well known as the disciples, but we also learn from Paul that there were over 500 followers at the time of the resurrection. And Jesus didn't make light of the call to follow him in discipleship at all. Luke 14, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And I know what you're thinking. This is a really nice verse to share on Father's Day. But of course, Jesus isn't saying that we should hate our families. There are other places where he explicitly said otherwise, but he is making a powerful point and demonstrating the seriousness of this call to be a disciple and follow him. It carries on verse 27. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. He's reinforcing the same point that this is a significant commitment that you're making to be a disciple of Jesus, to leave the crowd and move closer to become a disciple. Verse 28. But don't begin until you count the cost. Don't accept the call to discipleship until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him. And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Jesus makes no mistake about it, lets everyone know this is a giant commitment and a giant cost, and you should be aware of it. And this theme is repeated a number of times. There's another occasion in John's gospel. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. And this is a blunt challenge from Jesus. The way to truly find life is to let go of it. Giving up stuff is tough. Sacrifice is tough. But what you gain is better. The promise here is not material or temporal things. The promise is being able to be close to Jesus and being shown approval and given honor by the Father. And can I make you a promise? It's way easier for me to stand up here and preach this to you than it's gonna be for me to wake up tomorrow morning and live this out. Way easier. But I am convinced it's worth it. I am convinced it's worth it. I remind myself that God is with me. He's committed to be with me. That I've got people around me that are gonna help me through. And I want that to be the same for each and every one of you here today. I want you to believe deeply that this call to sacrifice, this call to discipleship, this call to be close is worth it. I'd love to stand here and tell you it's easy. It would be an absolute lie. But I do believe wholeheartedly it is worth it. It is worth it. Now there are some differences between the disciples and the crowd. And I want to consider some of those with you today. The first one is disciples make time. Disciples make time. I believe this is a, a key ingredient as we consider the idea of discipleship and being discipled is that time is a missing component in lots of areas of church's life all across the country and even all across the world today. Instead, we're tempted to have this drive-through mentality. 
It's a con constant temptation to resist. And I'm certainly not trying to make myself exempt in this, that our spiritual life, our relationship with God, our discipleship, there's a temptation to have a microwave attitude or a drive-through attitude rather than making the time. But that's crowd thinking. A disciple makes time. Time is key. And one of the ways that I found this out and realized this in my life is not long after uh, we got married, Megan and I went through Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. And if you know anything about Dave Ramsey or uh, Financial Peace, it's uh, a course, it's a biblically-based course about how you can get your finances in order, get out of debt, set yourself up so that money is a blessing and not a curse in your life. It's a wonderful program. Uh, I love doing it. But I enjoyed doing it so much back then that I was sold. I thought that Dave Ramsey had the answers to anything and everything financial. And so I listened to his podcast, I listened to his radio show, I absorbed myself in it, I immersed myself in it, I listened to everything and anything I could get that he was putting out because I believed that this was going to be a big help to me. And it got to the point where I'm listening to his radio show where people call in with their financial questions and they would call in, they put a question to Dave and before he answered, I knew what he was going to say. That's discipleship. That's discipleship. Spent so much time listening to his stuff and listening to the stuff that he put out and the materials that he put out and the podcasts that he released. Spent so much time that whatever question came forward, 80% of the time, I know what he's going to say here. Cut up the credit card, pay off the car loan, etc. But that was the deal. That was discipleship. That's the power of time when it comes to discipleship. Time with Jesus. How would Jesus, like what does Jesus have me do in this? As a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus, what does this mean for me in this moment? It's that time that gets us ready for that. I want you to turn to somebody next to you. If you want to yell at someone across the church, that's okay with me. But tell somebody, you're a glass of water. Those of you online, you can either type it in the chat or you can yell it to someone across the street. But make sure somebody knows you're a glass of water. If you have a glass of water or if you have water in anything, really... No matter how hot it is, you give it enough time, it will adjust to room temperature. You take some, it doesn't matter if it's boiling over, you give it enough time, that water will adjust its temperature to be room temperature. You just need to give it time. If it's a little bit warm, give it a little bit less time, and it will adjust to room temperature. It does not matter how on fire for God somebody is, give it enough time without feeding that faith, without feeding that passion, without feeding that discipleship, they will adjust to room temperature. We will adjust to the room around us. We will adjust to the surroundings. When the Bible talks about, uh, if the Bible talks about bad company corrupts good character, and don't be conformed to the ways of this world, this is what we're talking about. Without feeding our faith, without fueling our faith, we just adjust to the world around us. We just blend into the background. We just become room temperature water. So what do we do with this time? If time is the key, making time is part of being a disciple, what do we do with that time? Well, the good news is nobody in 2,000 years of church history has been able to reinvent the wheel. For 2,000 years to make time to grow in discipleship and grow in relationship with Jesus, we've got prayer, we've got Bible reading, we've got worship, and we've got fellowship. And in 2,000 years, nobody has successfully reinvented that wheel. They're spending time in prayer, lifting up all your concerns, all to the Lord, is giving praise to God and thanking Him for all the good things in life. It's digging into the Bible, this incredible gift that God has given us to find out who He is and what it means to live with each other. 
Spending time in worship just reminding your heart and your soul that he alone is worthy. He alone is the Lord our God. And spending time with other believers in fellowship, just talking about what God's doing and just living our lives together and just sort of letting people speak into us and let us know, the right, you know, give us some wisdom where it's needed and people give us encouragement where it's needed, but just that fellowship together. Those four things. For 2,000 years, that's what believers have been grabbing onto, and that has been part of the reason that disciples all over the world have grown closer with God. It's just prayer, Bible reading, worship, and fellowship. It's the boring answer, but it's the only one I got. Because for 2,000 years, that's how God has been blessing his people by drawing them closer. Second thing, disciples stay close. Disciples stay close. The Greek and Hebrew education, the classroom setting. Example from Jesus, he had the disciples sitting at his feet, but he also had that Hebrew education aspect, that apprenticeship, where they were constantly with Jesus, constantly observing him in action, constantly observing him in life. They were together, working, eating, living, traveling together. They got to see who Jesus was, how he lived, how he conducted himself in all manner of social situations. And this is an overly simplified example, but if you can imagine, if something is far away, it doesn't take up as much as your vision. It doesn't take up as much of your eyesight as if you're right up close. If someone is far away and they're speaking, their voice is quieter. If you're up close, it becomes the loudest and most important voice in your life. The physical proximity mattered to the disciples. Get close to Jesus. Don't just hang in the crowd. See him. Let him take up vision in your life. Let his voice be the loudest voice in your life. John 12, 26, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. Disciples stay close. So how much time and how close do we need to get? Well, enough to make sure that our water isn't room temperature. John 6, John 6, there's a story where uh, Jesus, he's gathered a crowd and they're hearing him talking and uh, teaching. And Jesus starts talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood and freaks out everybody. Little did they know that he's initiating the conversation around communion that we would celebrate, but they just got freaked out. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Yeah, I don't know about that. I I'm out. And in John 6, 66, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. They were freaked out by this whole eating flesh, drinking blood thing. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked, are you also going to leave? And Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. And in times are tough, when there's a challenge, when life is flat out unfair, that prompt from Jesus, are you also gonna go? Is this the limit? Is this how far you're willing to go with this relationship with me? Things didn't go your way. Things didn't work out. You were treated badly. People did hurtful things to you. People said hurtful things to you. Life was flat out unfair and it was all wrong. Are you going to leave now? And I felt that challenge a number of times. And the next challenge is you need to respond like Peter. Where else am I going to go? You have words that bring eternal life. Yeah. Disciples are committed and loyal. Disciples say, where else am I going to go when life is flat out horrible? Making a commitment 
It isn't for the benefit of the good times. It's for the benefit of the bad times. Making a commitment is where trust comes in. Trust that God will lead us through scary seasons, that our faith and commitment will outlast disappointment and being treated unfairly. And Jesus, he showed significantly more commitment and loyalty to his disciples than the disciples in the Bible ever showed to him. As we're talking about being committed and loyal to Jesus, about letting him carry us through storms, about having that attitude of Peter, about where else am I gonna go? It's real helpful to keep in mind that he is far more committed to us, far more loyal to us than we have ever been to him. The disciples in the Bible, Judas sold him out, 30 pieces of silver. Peter denied him three times. The rest of the disciples ran away scared when he was arrested. It does not matter how much loyalty and commitment we have ever shown to Jesus, he has shown us infinitely more. And if there's any doubt in your mind, a quick think back to the past week and see all the different times that you were not loyal and were not committed to our discipleship in Jesus. And then remind yourself that he still loves you, still wants to know you, still wants to keep you close, still wants to spend time with you, still wants to show you loyalty and commitment all over again. Disciples make time. Disciples stay close. Disciples are committed and loyal. And the fourth thing, disciples become disciples. Disciples become disciples. Matthew 28, 18, very well-known passage. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. This is Jesus talking to the disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The disciples were always going to pass along what they had learned. But look at the bozos that Jesus put in charge of this whole thing. These 11 people should never have been in charge of anything. 40 days earlier, they're running away. They're scared. They've abandoned Jesus. They're denying they ever even knew him. And these are the people that Jesus said, you're going to go and change the world. And they did because he is with them even to the end of the age. And a quick rewind from this point in time, back to when Jesus was working with the disciples. There's a story of uh, Jairus' daughter, and Jairus was uh, the leader of a local synagogue, and he begged Jesus to come to his house and heal his daughter who was dying. And on the way, someone tells them that the girl had died, but that didn't stop Jesus. So we're going to pick this up in Luke 8, 51. When they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, James and John, Peter, James and John, and the little girl's father and mother. The house was filled with people weeping and wailing, but he said, stop the weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him because they all knew she had died. Then Jesus took her by the hand and said in a loud voice, my child, get up. And at that moment, her life returned and she immediately stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. A few years later, this is after Jesus returned to heaven. There's a story about a lady called Tabitha, whose name was also Dorcas. She had taken ill and died, but people heard Peter was in town. People heard a disciple of Jesus is close by, someone who had learned firsthand from the master, someone who had gone to Jairus' house, someone who had been tasked with continuing the work of Jesus. And look how familiar this is from the book of Acts. 939, so Peter returned with them, and as soon as he arrived, they took him to the upstairs room. The room was filled with widows who were weeping and showing him the coats and other clothes Dorcas had made for them. But Peter 
asked them all to leave. Then he knelt and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, get up, Tabitha, and she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and he helped her up. Then he called in the widows and all the believers and he presented her to them alive. The news spread through the whole town and many believed in the Lord. Many believed. Hopefully, many became disciples. The disciple had become the discipler. Disciples become disciplers. Peter saw Jesus go in full of confidence that he was going to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. And when it was his turn, he was ready to go. Because of that, many more believed. Disciple of Jesus means following, obeying, learning from, and listening to Jesus as he defines who we are and how we engage the world. The follow me is a call to move from the crowd to a disciple, never forgetting that this is the biggest commitment, but it's worth it. The disciples make time. The disciples stay close. The disciples are committed and loyal. The disciples become disciples. I got a couple of questions for you, and if you have a chance to write these down, and maybe you have a few minutes this week to pray through this, and just consider what it might mean for you, and how the Lord can stretch you and challenge you in this. The first one is, how does being a disciple of Jesus define you? How does being a disciple of Jesus define you? We talked last week about grace reprioritizing everything. Grace reprioritizing everything. And in light of that, and in light of the call for disciples to get close and spend time with Jesus and be transformed by that relationship, how does being a disciple of Jesus define you? And a second question, how are you making time and staying close? How are you making time and staying close? I don't want to suggest that there is a program and there's a certain amount of time and there's a certain hoops you need to jump through and certain boxes you need to check. But the amount of time, the amount of closeness, it's enough to make sure that your glass of water is not room temperature. How are you making time and staying close? Matthew 9, 35. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into the field. Jesus helped the crowd. He healed them. He had compassion on them. He didn't want them to be helpless and confused, but he wanted more workers. He told them, pray for more workers, pray for more disciples. Pray for more disciples making disciples. And that invitation that Jesus gave 2,000 years ago, follow me, is the same invitation that he extends to you, me, and anyone else you know today. And I'm not gonna lie and try and sell you Jesus by downplaying what following Jesus means and the commitment that's involved. It means trusting that this is the only way to heal your broken relationship with God, that he's the only one who can heal you from the brokenness of sin. But if you believe that and you trust that, it means that becoming a disciple, accepting that call to follow me is the single greatest thing anyone could ever do. You may be here today and I, I don't know the story. I don't know what brought you to church today. You might be here every week, but something from today was special for you. 
You may have never set foot in a church in your entire life, but you're at that point today where somehow you might not be able to put words to it, you might not be able to explain it, but you just know those words, follow me, is something that God would say to you today. Something that the Son, Jesus Christ, would say to you today is just simply, follow me. And on the inside, you just know that you know, I need to say yes. You've got to the point in your life where you believe that Jesus is who He says He is. You believe that He's the Son of God. You believe that He is the only perfect one that could take away the sins and the regrets and the mistakes that you and I have. And that He paid that price on the cross 2,000 years ago. And that He rose from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death once and for all so we could have a healed and whole relationship with God. And if you're at that point and you believe that, and you're ready to accept that invitation to follow me, I'd love to pray for you today. And I wanna ask everyone here, if you mind just closing your eyes and bowing your heads, I give you my word, I'm not gonna embarrass anybody here, I'm not gonna make you do anything weird or anything to make you uncomfortable. But we're gonna pray in just a moment, and when we do, I'd love to know who we're praying for. So if you're here today and you're ready to say yes to that invitation to follow me, if you just put your hand in the air just so I know who we're praying for. Amen. Anybody else here today? Amen. Thank you. Anyone else? Online, you can click the button that says, I raise my hand, and that lets us know. Thank you. Amen. Anybody else? Wonderful. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. If you put your hand up, you can put it down. I promise I've seen you. Is there anyone else? Wonderful. Thank you. Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate people responding to the call of follow me. Amen. We're going to pray a prayer together, and the words are on the screen. And we do this every week, and I'll say a line, and then if you say it back to me, and if you're one of those people that put your hand up, and even if you didn't, but you wanted to, I want to invite you to pray this especially, full of faith, full of confidence, that a prayer like this changes everything. So come on, everybody, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, everybody. Amen. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to follow along with our summer series. You can text the link over to a friend to share it with them and listen together. One more thing, to stay connected with us online, visit wordoflifeag.org. That's our website, wordoflifeag.org. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook to join the conversation. Talk soon.